All right. Well, to all you that are watching at home and for all of our people that are here this morning with us, I think we have about 140-something here this morning. Uh, good morning to all of you, and welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. You know, uh, usually when I preach, I preach out of the Gospel of John. However, uh, this morning I felt the, the need and the desire to... Uh, strike a different chord uh, of a particular emphasis that I think is rather needed today, and that is on our identity in Christ, and you'll see where I'm going with this in just a minute. If you turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, we're going to only look at just a few verses here, verses 26 to 29. But while you're turning there, let me just uh, preface my remarks and kind of move us in that direction by just saying... Uh, you know, the United States is certainly not united right now. Ever since the murder of George Floyd back in May and a number of other uh, high-profile cases involving police officers shooting uh, black men, um, or even what we're seeing now with the, with the tragic shooting of Breonna Taylor, our country has been deeply divided uh, over the issues of racism and policing and politics. And all of this has led to protests, riots, looting, uh, violence, and unfortunately, even murder. You know, the Marxist and pro-LGBTQ organization, Black Lives Matter, has justified rioting and looting and has villainized the police, calling for their defunding. And as a result, many of their followers... Uh, have waged war against police officers indiscriminately, uh, really hoping to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And uh, as you know, recently we saw a couple of Compton police officers shot at close range as they were sitting in their car and some folks on the street celebrating as it was happening. All this to say there is deep division in our country. You know, everyone is expected to choose sides and to choose narratives, right? You're either for social justice or you're for the police, but God forbid you could be for both. You, you must affirm that either everything in the U.S. is systematically or systemically racist or you're on the polar opposite of the political divide and therefore nothing is, but there can't possibly be a middle ground in that discussion. This has caused great division. The coronavirus has also been a major point of dissension as well, with, with some wanting the country to stay locked down due to the potentially deadly consequences of the spread of COVID-19, where others are absolutely fed up with the shutdown of businesses and schools and churches and want everything to open because the whole thing is a, is a major overreaction. Again, such polarized uh, opinions. People have strong opinions on both sides of whether to mask or not to mask, and both sides can be pretty belligerent about their opinions. I mean, I never thought I would live to see the day where actual fistfights uh, would break out over whether someone is wearing a mask or not, you know, cloth on their face. But we've all seen the videos, right? We've all seen that this is the reality we live in today. Now, we would expect things to be different, to be better among, amongst Christians, right? Because, I mean, the world, we kind of expect this. Sin is a reality. This is what sin produces in a society. And so we would think things would be, you know, better amongst Christians. But the sad reality is that there has been just as much division in the churches 
as there has been in our world. You know, like-minded believers are fighting over what constitutes social justice and how that impacts our understanding of the gospel. And, And I'm saddened to say that not enough grace or charity has been afforded from either side, and thus the divide. You know, rather than listen to each other and discuss where our concerns are, too easily we are dismissive because we can only interpret each other according to our own political narrative rather than as brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we speak past each other and automatically denounce each other as gospel compromisers. Even the issue concerning uh, whether to practice civil disobedience as a church has become a dividing issue amongst Christians. You know, I, I'm not telling you anything you don't, need, you don't already know, but, you know, some churches have chosen to open and have given the impression that um, all churches should, you know, do the same or they aren't being faithful to the Lord. And then there are those on the other side who are denouncing churches who have decided to open with a less than gracious spirit. Both of those are very polarizing uh, positions when you put it that way. In fact, I saw a post on Facebook not that long ago of an acquaintance who, who blasted John MacArthur and Grace, who we just prayed for, you know, Danny prayed for, for opening up his church during the pandemic. And it, it was shocking to read the self-righteous, judgmental posts, you know, that were accompanying it in, in that uh, Facebook post. I almost took a picture of it because I thought to myself as I was reading it that this is the perfect illustration of Pharisaism. Look, our, our church may have taken a different path than grace on whether to reopen, but we certainly respect, the, as, and as we told you guys from the outset when we first started all this, we, we need to respect other churches' decisions on what they're going to do for their congregations, and we should not make this a point of division where we're you know sitting around judging other churches for disagreeing with what we have decided to do here, being meeting outside and uh, seeking to, seeking a different way. We shouldn't be plain judge over other churches. In fact, uh, you know, to, to say all that, even though we've taken a different route than some of these other churches that have chosen to open, I, I certainly hope that Grace wins their court case. You know, all, all this to say that the church needs to be better than what it has been. You know, we need to be a distinct gospel witness at a time such as this, and we can't blow the opportunity that God has given to us. You know, the world, you know, should see the church united in contradistinction to the world, not divided. Then we're just like everybody else. So I want to point us to a passage this morning that will help us to reorient our minds so that we tend towards the path of unity rather than division. That, that's really where I want to get you guys uh, to think about today is to, is to unify and not to divide. We need to remember who we are as Christians, that our identity is not found in our ethnicity, it's not found in our culture, it's not found in our gender, it's not found in our social status, it's not found in our political party, but it is found in Christ. And so I'd like to briefly walk you up to today's short passage by providing some context in the book of Galatians. You know, Paul had himself evangelized these southern Galatian churches 
but was now distressed to find out that they had fallen prey to false teachers known as Judaizers. Just briefly, the Judaizers were known as those who taught that in addition to faith in Christ, it was necessary to obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved and sanctified. This defection from the true gospel infuriated Paul to such a degree that he opened the epistle with this stinging condemnation on any who would dare to teach that the law has anything to do with your salvation. He wrote this in verses 6 to 9 of the opening chapter. He said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In the rest of the epistle, Paul carefully defines what the gospel is and how a person can be saved apart from the works of the Mosaic law by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, you know, to make a long story short, by the time we get to chapter 3, Paul takes time to explain the purpose of the Mosaic law in God's redemptive historical plan, but he clarifies that it was inferior to the Abrahamic covenant, which predated it by 430 years. Well, why was the Mosaic law inferior to the Abrahamic covenant? Well, for this simple reason. The Mosaic law was never meant to be permanent. It had a temporary purpose to condemn all of us under sin in order to drive us to Christ to receive the unconditional promises that were made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. That's Paul's point in verses 21 to 22, and so I'm getting us closer to what we're going to look at here this morning. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You know, in the history of redemption, the Mosaic law, it functioned as a tutor, or think of it in our modern day vernacular, as a babysitter to us. It, confi it confined us all under sin until Christ came who fulfilled the law on our behalf. And now that Christ has come and our faith rests fully in him, we no longer need our old tutor that showed us our sin and our falling short of God's standard of righteousness. We don't need the old babysitter anymore, the law. And so Paul is going to point out in this passage that true believers in Christ become God's sons and thus the rightful recipients of the promises that were originally made to Abraham and his progeny back in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, the Abrahamic covenant. So the main idea in this passage is that we all have sonship 
because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. And as a result, there is true unity, true unity with each other. And that's really what I want to focus you on this, this morning to really galvanize towards the unity that we have in Christ. Let's look there in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You know, the reason or the basis for why believers in Christ are no longer under the Mosaic law is presented right here in verse 26. Notice the change of address here. You know, if you look at verses 23 to 25, you notice that there's first person's plurals here. We, are, us. But all of a sudden here, the second person plural, you. Paul is not speaking exclusively of Jews anymore, but now he includes the Gentiles as well. So now we got everyone here being addressed, Jews and Gentiles. And this is borne out by that adjective all in the emphatic position, indicating that all the Galatians, all the Jews, all the Gentiles are included in the statement. So Paul is emphasizing the significance of sonship as he has just finished explaining the purpose of the law. Now, although the Judaizers were teaching that one can be an heir of the Abrahamic promise through law-keeping, keeping the Mosaic law, the truth is that the law is simply a tutor, a babysitter to bring us to Christ. It's not a means of sonship. That lies somewhere else. And notice the reason that we're no longer under the law. We're no longer under the law because now we are sons of God. I want you to take a step back and, and think if you were the original audience, what that would have meant to you. You know, for them, when they heard sonship, they automatically thought of adulthood, maturity, meaning that they've reached the age where they would now be the rightful possessors of their father's promised inheritance. They're not a baby anymore. They don't need someone to walk them to school. They're now an adult. So do you see the analogy that Paul is making? He says, look, the, the law has run its course in redemptive history, and believers have now obtained sonship and are recipients now of the promised inheritance from the Father. So to be under the law is the opposite of being God's son. And anyone seeking to be saved, to be justified through the law, cannot be considered God's son and will not participate in the benefits of sonship. Sonship, therefore, emphasizes the notion of liberty from the law and all its burdens and consequences thereof. Now, there is only one way in which sonship can be achieved. Only one way. And that is through faith, which unites all of us in Christ. Now, I want you to catch the nuance here. It is because of our union with Christ, which can only take place through faith, that we can become God's sons. This is a well-known emphasis in Paul's writings. It's what's called his in Christ theology, which seeks to emphasize all the spiritual benefits we receive because of our union with Christ. 
whole books have been read on this, uh, have been written on this subject because it's such an important emphasis in, in the scripture. But I, I want you to just briefly consider another passage that stresses the concept of sonship. It's really a review passage because we just looked at it a couple of weeks ago. So I just want to bring it back, refresh it to your attention. And that's in Romans chapter 8 in uh, verse 15. So just keep your finger here. And just this again, this is just a reminder of what we covered very recently. But it, it's, it's a parallel to what we're talking about here this morning. In Romans 8.15, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know, at the moment you placed your faith in Christ, God washed away your sins and he put his spirit inside of you. Christ, at that very moment, broke your slavery to sin and the fear of punishment that goes with it. And instead, he gave you the freedom to live for him. The shackles were broken. But in so doing all that, Christ gave you the privilege of being a son, adopted into his family, and given the spirit who now works within our hearts from the inside out, producing the feelings that accompany sonship. In other words, he makes us aware of our new relationship with God. That's what the Spirit does. He brings intimacy. And yet, we're not sons by nature. We're, we're born into God's family, right? We, we were sons of disobedience, right? Children of wrath. But instead, we are sons now by adoption meaning we are granted all the full rights and privileges of sonship into a family that we do not belong to by nature. This is all accomplished through the Holy Spirit, and because of him, all believers can call God Abba Father. That word Abba is an intimate Aramaic term which a, a small child would use as an address to his daddy. You know, like Dada or Papa. You know, it's a very affectionate term of endearment. And because of our, our, our adoption by the Father, through the Spirit, we're given the privilege of addressing God as our Father in the most intimate of ways. And notice, there is a crying out to God in this fashion. It's just like, oh, Dada, oh, Papa. You know, it's not a, it's not a, unaffectionate, unemotional crying out to God. It, in fact, what's suggested here is a deep, heartfelt emotion that is being experienced due to a proper understanding of this new relationship that you have with God. Can I just make one comment as it relates to our emotions? You know, we certainly want to guard against emotionalism, you know, discouraging believers from basing their relationship with God on just how you feel. Well, I don't feel like praising God today. I don't feel like going to church today. You know, I don't feel like reading the word today. I don't feel like praying. You know, we, we certainly need to guard against emotionalism and just how we feel. However, we need to understand that there is a legitimate place for an outpouring of emotion towards God, an intimacy with him because we understand what he has done for us. Shouldn't the reality of redemption 
stir up our emotions and touch our hearts. Yes. So we don't need to denigrate our emotions, right? We don't need to denigrate it and say, oh, it's bad, it's evil, we shouldn't be emotional. But we just also need to be careful not to be led by them either. But it's totally appropriate to have emotion towards our God, right? I think it would be inappropriate not to. Flipping back to uh, Galatians 3, as we get into verse 27 there, notice what he goes on to say, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The four there, the conjunction serves an explanatory function, further confirming the reality of sonship. Let, let me talk about what it means very briefly to be baptized into Christ and how this is, again, a shared reality amongst believers that unites all of us. The word baptized literally means to dip or to immerse. And when it's used in the New Testament, it can refer either to the ordinance of baptism, right? Water baptism, right? Where, we, where many of you have seen that service. Or it could, be, it could be used metaphorically, you know, like a baptism of fire, a baptism of suffering, so on and so forth, right? Now, this root idea of immersion leads naturally to the idea of identification, union, membership, or initiation. Now, what Paul is focusing on here, just so that we're clear, is not so much the ordinance of water baptism itself, but you have to understand deeper than that, but the truth or reality that water baptism symbolizes. So he's not looking at the symbol He's looking at the meaning behind the symbol here in this verse. Now think about it. When a new Christian is baptized, he is publicly identifying himself with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection has become our death and resurrection. We're identifying with him, right? We're unified with our, with our Lord. Remember what Paul said just a chapter earlier in, in chapter 2, verse 20? I have been, what? Crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? Identification, union. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The old me is gone. It's been crucified with Christ, and I have a new identity as God's son. Now, carrying the metaphor even further, Paul goes on to say that if you've been baptized into Christ, you have then put on Christ. You know, that verb put on literally means to clothe yourself. What is one thing that all of us here have in common here this morning? You all got up. And you put on clothes, right? Otherwise, you'd be escorted out of here. You wouldn't be sitting here right now, right? We're all clothed here this morning. Um, and, you know, so it means to clothe yourself. And when it's used metaphorically, as in this case, in relation to persons, it signifies that you take on the character of, you take on the standing of, or you, do be, you become as that person. Right, And so think about how this adds to our understanding of our new identity in Christ. This connection is so close, it's as if you are wearing Christ. It's like he's part 
of your attire, right? And so his righteous standing is now my righteous standing. He is righteous before the Father, and therefore I'm righteous before the Father, right? We can stand before the Father as his adopted sons because we are united by faith in his one and only Son. So union with Christ brings unity with each other as well. Yet this has ethical implications, moral implications as well. You know, being in such close proximity to the Lord means that his life is certainly going to impact and influence our lives to conform to his own. You know, using that exact same metaphor in Romans 13, 14, Paul commands this, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here are the ethical implications. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So you know what? Being God's son certainly gives us incredible benefits and privileges, but also ethical and moral responsibilities that go with it. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, we're about to explain one of the most abused passages in the New Testament, but let me say more on that in just a minute. We can see in the context of the previous verses that Paul is focusing on what it means to be God's son, right? Union and identification with his one and only son, Jesus. Well, now we receive this important qualifying statement. All people, regardless of their ethnicity, Jew or Greek, their social status, slave or free, or their gender, male and female, have equal access to salvation in Jesus Christ by the great equalizer, faith. Let this resonate in your heart, okay? Let this resonate in your heart. No person, due to ethnicity, social class, or gender, is any closer to God than anyone else, okay? Because nothing like that affects your relationship with God. That's a uniting truth, isn't it? As we look out amongst ourselves, that's a uniting truth. No matter who you are, you are a member of God's family if you are united to Christ by faith. Everyone who's here today at IBC and in the larger body of Christ as well, who has placed their faith in Christ is equal in God's sight. No one is better than anyone else. Do you realize that? That's a biblical truth. You know, the reason that Paul phrased this verse in this way was probably due to the misguiding thinking of some of the, the, the Jewish people who were of his, his very own day, in his, uh, meaning his contemporaries. Interestingly, you know, we, we see some of the um, ancient prayer books uh, that record that Jewish men, not, not all Jewish men, but some, which gives you a flavor of why this would be necessary to state this. They would uh, pray to God in the morning, thanking him 
that he was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Right? That was praise to God that you didn't make me any of those three. And back then, many Jews, in fact, believed that on the basis of their race, there was no way that they would be denied access to heaven. One tradition even speaks of Abraham standing at the gates of hell to make sure that no circumcised man would ever pass through those gates. Also, you know, because of the restrictions in the law concerning women, many also thought that women were spiritually inferior to men. And if that kind of thinking persisted in Galatia, Paul promptly puts an end to it. See, it doesn't matter what your social standing is before God, so long as you are standing in Christ. No man on the basis of his gender, his race, or his social status is any closer to God than anyone else. Why? Because we all become united in Christ Jesus. Every person in Christ is a spiritual equal because we're all united in the Lord of the church. Tom Schreiner said this in his commentary on Galatians. He says, quote, it follows from their participation in Christ that all believers are one, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, male or female, ethnic background, social class, and gender are irrelevant in assessing whether one belongs to Jesus Christ. All those who belong to Christ by faith are part of his family, unquote. Now, in saying all of this, it shouldn't be misunderstood as it is by many today as if Paul is saying that being united in Christ means eliminating all social or biological distinctions or the roles that go with them. That's a lie from the pit of hell. For example, this verse has been tragically twisted and perverted to support the elimination of role distinction between men and women or even the distinction of any kind of gender of men and women. Again, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Evangelical feminists claim that this verse teaches that in Christ there is no longer any male headship or female subordination. But as is clear from the context, that subject is not even being addressed in the passage. So let's make sure we understand what Paul means when he says that you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's an important point. Although there are many different ways in which the word one is, is used, the word one is not the, the equivalent of meaning equal. That's not what the word means. In fact, out of all the lexical options uh, in the Greek lexicons, um, that's never used that way. So you shouldn't, as you read this, don't think uh, when you read the expression, you are all one in Christ Jesus, it means you are all equal in Christ Jesus in every way whatsoever and that there's no distinctions at all. That's not what the word means, okay? What it does express is that diverse objects share something important in common. In other words, in contrast to what makes you different, right? Like in the, in the matter of these three, uh, couplets, 
There is something more important that you share in common. Now, of course, the expression implies some notion of equality. So it doesn't mean there's no notion at, at all. But that doesn't mean that they're equal in every respect whatsoever without qualification. So in our verse, although the couplets presented are diverse, in contrast to that diversity, they are united in some important way, or I should say in the most important way. So what Paul means in Galatians 3.28 is that all people, regardless of their race, Jew or Greek, their social status, slave or free, or gender, male or female, they are all saved the same way, by faith, and are equal in their union with Jesus Christ. That's the sense of equality that is met in the passage. So in other words, all believers are one in Christ without any distinction, spiritually speaking. They are fully equal on the spiritual plane. So this oneness that Paul describes is a qualified equality that unites us despite our gender, our social and ethnic differences. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. That's the same kind of language that Jeremiah used when prophesying about the new covenant in 31:34, where he prophesied, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to what? The greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So the oneness that is shared in Christ is a qualified equality and should not be used to abolish men's and women's roles any more than it could be used to abolish ethnic or social distinctions. In other words, there were still Jews and Gentiles. It didn't make them disappear, right? There were still slaves and free men in Paul's day. And of course, there were still men and women. And that's why we're still here today, right? So elsewhere in Paul's writings, he still speaks of the distinct roles of headship and submission as it applies to men's and women's roles in both the home, like in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, or in the church, like in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. So let's understand that this is primarily a theological statement, not a social one. You know, in fact, as it related to slavery, Paul didn't call for its abolition, but instead he gave instructions to both masters and slaves as to how they should treat each other as believers in Christ. Ephesians 6, 5 to 9 is one of those passages. Sure, Paul encouraged slaves, though, to gain their freedom if it were possible in 1 Corinthians seven twenty one. But at the, at the end of the day, his main concern was whether you were fulfilling your role in a way that would honor God. Now, the good news is, that, that due to these kinds of Christian regulations for master and slave relations, not to mention the book of Philemon, which served as a manifesto in this regard, that is what eventually led to the abolition of slavery altogether. I say altogether, there's still slavery in parts of the world, but you get what I'm saying in terms of it being a, a general practice in normal society. That was due to Scripture. 
Now let's uh, come to our last verse together, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Here's uh, Paul's punchline. If Christ is Abraham's offspring and the one to whom all the covenant promises would ultimately be fulfilled, he mentions that actually in chapter 3, verse 16, just a little bit earlier, then those who are in Christ by faith, that's all of us, Gentiles included, Jews as well, then we are truly Abraham's offspring and the recipients of all those promises. Remember those promises that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2 to 3? And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then here was... the the blessing that would throw it open to the nations. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You realize that all all the nations on the earth would include Gentiles. That would include us. So being a son of God is only possible by being in Christ, which then qualifies us to be Abraham's offspring and then to get in on all those promises that God originally made to Abraham, even though we were not God's people. Notice the emphasis upon Christ and the benefits we receive because of our union with him. We are sons of God through faith in Christ in verse 26. And because of this fact, we are then clothed with his righteousness. All men, regardless of race, status, or gender, have equal access to him. And every person in Christ is then a spiritual equal. And then lastly, the true child of Abraham, an heir to the promises made to him, are only for the one who has placed his faith in Christ. This is something that the law couldn't do, and that, and that is to produce true sons of God. That's why Christ had to come, and, and that he did come, thank God, and by faith, we become his sons, and that is what unites us. Okay. I want to end with a, a few applications here as we think about what, what it is we just heard. I, I want you to, to look around right now at each other. Take a good look at each other. And I want you to think about the fact that each of us are sons of God and that we all here belong to the same family all of us we're all at different places socially different genders different ethnicities right but we all belong to the same family what does that mean to you you know what does that mean to you that should mean a lot you have everything in common you worship the same god you've all been forgiven of all of your sins You are destined to spend eternity together. I don't know if that's good news or bad news for you, but this is the reality. Look around. You are destined to spend eternity together on a new heaven and new earth, united around your union with Christ.
So why on earth would you let things that are going on in the world divide you? Why would you let politics divide you? Why would you let differences of opinion about this or that social issue divide you? Don't you have more in common than not? Listen, if you find more common ground with people in your political party than you do with another brother or sister in Christ, there's something wrong with that. Okay? There's something wrong if we find more affinity with, with people that are outside the faith than those who are in it. This is Christ's church, and there's nothing more unifying than that. So let's not forget who we are and that we all serve the same Lord of the church. That's the place to start, not the place to shove in somewhere in the conversation. That is to, that's the lens through we think of everything and how we talk to each other, right? Not in narratives, right? That's why we can't hear each other. The second thing I want to say, especially as it relates to the, the national conversation, and again, this is a conversation going on in the churches. But you know, the antidote to racism is not found in political parties. It's not found in legislation or any other forms of coercion. Now, although I do believe that race relations have improved in this country, and I, and I say that as someone whose mother uh, had to live in an internment camp you know, when she was about six years old and had all her property taken away, lived in a, basically a detention camp, a pr- basically prison, you know. They got out you know, three or four years later when, when she got out, her and her family were then given 600 bucks to start over, you know, uh, for what crime? That she was Japanese. Japanese-American, not Japanese from J- Japan, Japanese-American. So I, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, deaf to the idea that this country has a, has a bad history uh, of, of racism or anything like that. I understand that. That's a reality, okay? But, but, but yes, there is improvement in this country, okay? And should we work towards improving race relations? Of course, of course. I'm not suggesting otherwise. We should strive towards greater peace, right? However, if you think we will ever abolish racism altogether, that's never going to happen this side of the rapture. So for you younger people who think that you're going to grow up in a country one day where, where uh, racism is, is not a reality in our world, that ain't never going to happen. It's never been true at any time in, in our nation's history or the world history for that matter, right? Racism is around in the Bible. It took a different form. It wasn't the color of your skin that racism was based on your culture, regardless of your skin color. If you lived in Egypt or you lived in Israel or you lived in other places, there was racism based on your culture. Well, you're not, you're not Roman. Oh, you're not Egyptian or whatever. But it was still a, a form of racism nonetheless, right? They, it, it just takes a different form. But it's been around forever. It's been around forever, and it's going to be around forever. Why? Because as long as there are sinners, there is always going to be sin in all its various forms, right? There's no form of sin that's extinct today, Right? It's not like the dodo, right, where something goes out of extinction, goes into extinction. Racism is a heart problem that must be dealt with at the heart level. The only thing that can radically change a person's heart 
is the gospel. It's the gospel. We have the antidote to the racism problem, don't we? Are we doing enough to bring that solution to the people in our immediate sphere of influence? Man, don't you think our world is a living illustration of, of who needs the gospel? What, they see the problem, but they don't have the solution. They don't know how to fix this thing, right? But you know what? Before we start offering the antidote of racism to our lost world, let's make sure that we're dealing with it in our own lives as well. Ask yourself the question as you sit here this morning. Do you look down in your heart on people of other races? Would you ever adopt a child of a different ethnicity? Would you exclude marrying someone because of the color of their skin? Would you object to your son or your daughter marrying someone because they're of a different ethnicity? Look, I, I've, I've heard all the, I'm not racist, it's just a preference, right? I've heard all that spiel before, but, you know, look, you're just kidding yourself, okay? If the only thing that excludes you from marrying another person is their race, then race is the determining factor, and you are a racist whether you're willing to admit it or not. Look, our identity is not in the color of our skin. It's in the person of Christ. Look, I don't look at myself as a Japanese Christian. I view myself as a Christian who just happens to be Japanese. Now, that doesn't mean that I, I despise my ethnicity or, or what I love about my culture, right? It just means that at the end of the day, it isn't what defines me. It's not what gives me my identity, okay? My faith in Christ does define me and gives me my identity. Now the challenge is, or the challenge becomes, living consistently with that truth. Last thing I'm going to say. I got news for you if you haven't figured this out on your own. Things could be getting pretty rough for the church. I think you probably realize that without me having to tell you, but things are, could be getting pretty rough for the church. It's very likely that persecution is in our near future. I never thought I'd live to see the day when pastors are being threatened with fines and jail time for having church, or that Christians would be arrested for singing outdoors. You saw that in Idaho the other day. And yet protesters can keep on protesting without fear of the same consequences. Local governments are becoming less and less sympathetic uh, to religious liberty and very intolerant towards evangelical Christianity specifically. You know, speaking out against LGBTQ and abortion is considered hate speech. And churches like ours are going to be pressured not to speak out or face sanctions and even jail time. I hope you guys are saving your money to bail us out because you really might, might need it, you know. Uh, that's okay. That's totally okay because you know why? That's the cost of following Christ. But understand, persecution can either unite or divide depending on the health of the congregation. The only way we're going to be faithful in a time like this is by staying united 
by remembering who we are in Christ because that's where our true identity is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning as we open the word and as we talk about these important truths that unite us. We need to unite, Lord. The church needs to unite and stand with one voice, with one opinion uh, for, for you the, with the gospel. Not that we can't have differences of opinion, not that we can't disagree on this or that, but at the end of the day, to unite around what does unite us, our faith in Christ. Thank you, Father, for all of these things and use our, unite our church and use us as a distinct witness in our world today. And we'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.